0: Good morning! Lizzie and Danny. Thank you.
1: We gather with open hearts and minds. We gather with excitement and expectation. We gather as many have before. We gather as many have yet to do. Our chalice flame lights our path, guides our steps, and makes sacred our time
0: together. Thank you. That's great, because it takes the onus off me to be starting everything off. (laughs) Uh, I should introduce myself. You already met me in in our opening session, but... um, And I've spoken to many of you already, but my name's Mel, um, I'm from West Yorkshire. I'm really pleased to be, been asked to take the kind of lead with these theme talks. I'm also really excited because, as I'll say later, I'm not doing it on my own, which is marvellous. Now the children, they they always get the best deal, don't they? Because they get to have really big adventures and do really cool stuff. Um, But they have to sit through a story from me first. And I've got this story about a red blossom tree. Has anyone heard this story before? A few. <laughs> so this is a story about the red blossom tree. It's from the Buddhist tradition. And actually, once I've told you this story and you've thought about it, um, the children and probably the adults will be able to think of other very similar stories. It's, um, is it called an archetype when you have a story? that? you Yeah, there you go. So this is a story about a land far, far away. Shrek does not live there. This is about a land far, far away. And in this land far, far away, there is a mystical red blossom tree. It's a very important tree to everybody who lives there. And everybody who lives in the kingdom far, far away, not including Shrek, visits the red blossom tree at some point in their childhood. And in the land far, far away, there was a family of four children who lived with their grandmother. And as the children got older, one by one, they got taken in secret to see the red blossom tree. And when the children were oh, a bit older than you guys, I'd say, when they are in their early teens, they set to talking about this red blossom tree. They were kind of trying to work out why it was special and what made the land of Far, Far Away tick, what was special about it, by knowing something about the red blossom tree. And so they said, well, that's a big secret, what did you make of the red blossom tree? And the first child said, Well, I've got a bit of a problem with it because when I went, it was not a red blossom tree. It was covered in black seeds, black seed It was a black seed tree. wasn't a red blossom tree. It seemed a bit strange to me. Another child said, Well, do you know, I'm really pleased you've just said that because when I went there, it was just a big brown trunk. It was just a brown, I should be called the brown trunk tree. Another child said... Well, you know, I feel so much better. I've been carrying this around for years, really worrying about this. But when I went to see it, it was just smothered in green leaves. It was very beautiful. It was lovely. And it, yeah, it was lovely beautiful. But it was not a red blossom tree. It should be called the green leaf tree. Hmm. And then the fourth child, the youngest child, said... Well, you know, that's really puzzling me now. Because when I went to see it, it was covered in red blossom. And it was extraordinary... And it, it was just the most beautiful blossom I've ever seen. It smelled beautiful and it looked beautiful. It was just wonderful. It was, it was obviously a red blossom tree. What better name for it? So the four children went off to see their grandmother. And they said, Grandmother, you need to explain to us what's going on with this red blossom tree. And what do you think, she said. I'm asking the children, by the way, not the adults." So, you know don't say anything. To <laughs> what do you think? The grandmother said about the red blossom trees. Anyone got any ideas? Yeah?
1: Yes, it was a
0: mm-hmm. it, so it was a seed. it grew. It grew. That's pretty close actually. That's very close to will Tell you what, when you get home you should listen to this story as told by Bill Darlison to the Dublin congregation. Okay? Because it took the kids there a long, long time to get as far as Is it like the See the, the blossom, branch, the leaves drop off in the seasons. It, that's it. That's it. Well done. Oh, God, our kids are so brilliant. <laughs> I've not got a vested interest in saying that. The, yes, that's exactly right. And the children have been taken every year, every every, you know, at their different stage in their life. They've been taken to see this tree, and they've seen it in a different stage. So it's been in seed. It's been bare. It's been covered in leaves, and then it had been in blossom. Peter and Jim might have a chat with you about that story later. But they might not. Who knows? So that's the story of the red blossom tree. We're going to join in singing. We've got all our hymns are from the purple book. And the first two, for those of you who use the purple book, the first two will be familiar. At least. Because they're quite, I think they're relatively popular ones. It's a sharing job, I'm afraid. There's one, there's one next to Peter there, there's one next there to Deborah. Glenn, there's one. There's one there. Three more spares around. Yeah. I don't know how carefully you distribute the hymn books. Why do I have that? I never tried to be helpful. I <laughs> Four, nine on nine. in theology, and you're having adventures in the, world, in the wild world, but um, maybe not. I'll just stop with that one, shall I? <laughs> just, that was never going to go anywhere, was it? And so, um, as the children and Jim and Peter, who I ought to differentiate from the children really, didn't I, uh, go off, let's sing, go now in peace to them as they wend their way for their adventures. of God. That's our topic for the week, not an easy topic. It's the subject that's been at the heart of the evolution of the Unitarian tradition. We are here in a Unitarian context because our religious predecessors realised that they could no longer accept the version of God that had become dominant over the course of Christian history. As knowledge of the world expanded, as philosophical inquiry began to push the limits of how we could think and speak about our world and our existence, as textual analysis and criticism made the revelation of sacred texts look less and less secure, it was Unitarians who led religious liberals in their radical re-evaluation of how we, as a human race, could speak of God. And I wonder what those brave people would think if they could come back now and visit us. What would they think of our level of theological inquiry? Would they feel that we had taken to its logical conclusion their radical re-evaluation of miracle stories, their radical application of reason and intuition? Might they feel that we had abandoned the questions before the job was done, though? I'm starting with quite a controversial statement there because I really wanted to make it clear why I think this is worth exploring now. And the answer may be that our religious predecessors, in our opinion, would be very happy with us. I can say without fear of contradiction that there was a certain amount of hesitation about brooking this topic at a close summer school. A little bit. We wondered if this was a topic people would want to avoid. We wondered if it would create too much heat and not enough light. I wonder how you felt when you saw the theme for this week. As somebody who had been before, perhaps, did it seem like a new departure? For somebody who's not been before, was it exciting and invigorating? Did you feel suspicious, enthused, nervous? I wonder how you felt. We need to start by recognising that quite possibly this week's theme will challenge many of us. For many Unitarians, finding and seeking God is a constant process. We accept that our sense of God is not fixed. The new radical atheists like Dawkins kind of miss the point about how we understand God. Dawkins draws his caricature, doesn't he, of God out there who made the world, listens to prayers, judges us, punishes us. It's not a picture of God that many of us would recognise. It's actually not a picture of God that many people in the mainstream religions would recognise either. People long ago dispensed with the beard in the clouds. Not everyone, but many people did. And that's, you know, no offence meant to Michael there, obviously. (laughs) He just emerged from the pulpit and I just looked at the beard of the (laughs) clouds. Dawkins, I think, actually I think Dawkins has got a lot of really good points about religion. About religion, you know, he's got some really good points. But he does his cause an amazing disservice by simplifying what it means to be religious and to believe. But I think that probably tells us a lot about the poor job that religious, liberal rather, religionists, have been doing of sharing their experience in theology. I don't think we're always good good at God's talk in Unitarianism. I've sometimes found it is a subject we find it easier not to talk about. It's like subjects not suitable for the dinner table. God seems sometimes to not quite be a subject suitable for church. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I had an experience
0: Several years ago experience several years ago Where I led a service And I'm sure many of you have been to services like this Where y- you ask people to share Words or ideas about what God means to them Yeah, You've had that sort of experience before What does God mean to you? And I asked the congregation, what does God mean to you? People wrote things down We, came, we, we read them all out so lovely, 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 lovely And um, Really interesting and challenging and invigorating. And at the end, one long-standing member of this congregation came up to me, virtually speechless, but not quite, and said he was flabbergasted. Absolutely Now, at first, I thought this might be at the quality of the contributions, but no, it wasn't. (laughs) He wasn't flabbergasted at the quality of the contributions, but because despite knowing these people for decades and worshipping with them for decades, he had no idea so many of them actually believed in God. This is in one of the healthiest congregations I know. (laughs) Um, we have as many different ideas about what and where God is as we have people in our community. But sometimes, because we have so many different ideas, and can therefore be quiet on the issue, sometimes it can appear that we have no idea. Now, I don't think this is a healthy state of affairs. I don't think it's healthy for children, for a start. And they do a lovely job of starting off this morning with a chalice site and we have such competent children. But those children go off to school where even in the state school system, they come across the Judeo-Christian idea of God. In stories and songs, they meet a God who is anthropomorphic and supernatural, who does things like performing miracles. It's taken as a given. I'm sure those of you parents, parents you know, have been through all this before. Now, that's something our 19th century ancestors dealt with, <laughs> left behind. Now, if we provide, as a religious community, no different way of understanding God, how do our children develop a natural and healthy and rounded theology. It's not good enough to say, yes dear, but that's not not what we believe. And nor is it acceptable to say, well, what do you think? I know the latter tends to be the preferred option. But actually, if there's no alternative models, we haven't given children the tools to answer the question. It's not fair to even ask them. I don't think it's healthy to avoid God for us adults either. We tend to get stuck at first base, if you like. We can't move beyond trying to find the right inclusive language or feeling so tongue-tied it's easier to say nothing. Often the hymns seem to be the place where we most happily refer to God. And we all know the joke about Unitarians singing hymns. And if you don't know the joke about Unitarians singing hymns, that why are we so bad at singing hymns? We're always reading ahead to see if we agree with the next line. <laughs> and if that, so if the hymns are where we actually do the God talk, that's, you know. I wonder sometimes if it's easier to, dr- to drift through our faith in the sense of, yeah, you know, it's good, we're doing it, it's great, rather than engage with the big theological issues. Is it a failing we want to do something about? Is it a failing that you recognise? I hope that in these theme talks... We'll have the opportunity to grapple with some of these big issues, to so exercise our grey matter. Well, Although I discovered today it's grey and white matter. Did not know that? Before. I'm not sure what the difference is, but exercise our grey matter, our hearts and our souls. No doubt we'll have more questions than answers. It's my my preferred modus operandi: more questions than answers. And no doubt there will be challenges along the way. As such, I'm going to start today by outlining for you how we plan to organise each morning's theme talk so you know what to expect. I'm thrilled to have been joined by five Unitarians, I'll introduce them each on the day that they're going to speak. Five Unitarians that uh, were approached because we felt that they were people who had great wisdom to share with us. No pressure there. (laughs) (laughs) You notice that wasn't why I was approached. (laughs) And those five Unitarians will share with us um, some profound insights, each taking a slightly different approach and sharing a slightly different life experience and learning. My role is to try and draw the talk together, try and see the ways that they link, to try and draw out some key themes, and to bring my particular perspective into immediate dialogue with the ideas we hear expressed. I'm going to talk a bit about dialogue in a later theme talk, and it will make more sense why I think dialogue is important. The the team of speakers have shared their developing talks over several months. In dialogue with one another the speakers have identified the key issues they want to draw out and as their talks have evolved over the planning right up to the last minute no doubt they will evolve over the week. Each morning between my guests and my own contribution we will have a five or ten minute period for you to talk to others around you or to sit with your own response to what you've heard. Uh, we're not going to take questions during the theme talks, which is a bit controversial. A bit controversial. We're not going to take questions, but instead I'm going to encourage you to discuss, share, reflect, think about over coffee. You know, use that as a time to actually go away and talk about this, not to discuss the quality of the biscuits. More importantly, our afternoon conversations on the theme talks. They're going to happen in the Hibbert room at 445 And they'll give you the opportunity to come and discuss your considered response with me and the other speakers. And with a larger group of people. And that's where we really hope to extend our dialogue. And I've got no doubt that the talks will develop again in response to those conversations. They will evolve over the week. The theme talks are dialogical. They're not confrontational. The speakers hope to learn from one another even when we may disagree. As such, these talks are as much about process as content, I suppose. And yet the content is significant. At work recently, I was telling a Quaker colleague of mine about the theme talks. She's a theologian, so I was kind of hoping for a bit of help. Instead, she just said, um, Oh, yes, I always forget that you Unitarians aren't anti intellectual. (laughs) I don't know whether that means Quakers are. (laughs) The theme talks are not whatever Alison's slip of the tongue this morning might have been. These theme talks are not lectures. I do that for my day job. I don't come to do it here. Um, But they are contentful. There is quite a lot of content in them. And I encourage you to sit easily with that. Um, Allow yourself to absorb, but don't become an overfull sponge. Because it could get you a bit messy. Uh, So that's the way we hope to work over the week. I hope, but it will evolve, I've no doubt. So now I can introduce my first fellow pilgrim, um, who's going to help us reflect on our speaking of God. David is a Unitarian from London. I'm sure many of you have met him already. He's a very popular worship leader, I hear, (laughs) who draws on his life experience as a Franciscan friar, among other things, in his inspirational reflections. And he's going to take us on a journey through some different understandings of God and how they relate to his own life experience. Thank you, David.
2: Uh, no, you might not clap at the end
1: <laughs>
2: I always assume it's for me. <laughs> One of the joys of becoming a Unitarian is that I no longer have to preach on Trinity Sunday. though I sometimes think that our Unitarian forebears, with their desire for Biblical accuracy, yes, remember they used to think and read the Bible? In their (laughs) desire for Biblical accuracy, they missed the point of the mystery of the Trinity. And it might be worth looking again at the poetry of the Trinity, but that's for another day, and I'm not volunteering. (laughs) When I did have to attempt to preach about the Trinity, I always started by saying that I wished I was a Benedictine monk rather than a Franciscan friar. For St. Benedict said that a sermon should be preached on every Sunday and on every feast day except the feast of the Holy Trinity when we should simply sit in awe and wonder. I feel the same of trying to speak of God. The Greek word theoria, from which we get our word theory, means not to theorise, perhaps the downfall of Western Christendom, but to contemplate, to sit in awe and wonder. However, I imagine that if I suggest now that we sit in silence for the next half hour, Mel may consider it a cop-out <laughs> rather than a sign of my mystical maturity.
1: LAUGHTER
2: Let me begin by putting what I'm going to say into context. God was very much part of my growing up. I learned about God from the Bible as interpreted by fairly liberal Presbyterian ministers and later by forward-thinking, yes, there are forward-thinking, Roman Catholic and Anglican biblical scholars. But I also had a sense that God was greater than his And my understanding of God was, as a he at that time, greater than his portrayal in the scriptures and by the church. I had a sense that God was a source of blessing and strength, but also a force that challenged me. God was and is part of my family's everyday language. We say goodbye, which itself actually means God be with you, by always adding God bless and sign cards and letters with God bless now it could be argued that this phrase has no more religious significance than goodbye but for me it represents an acknowledgement of something greater than I can understand that connects my human relationships let me share with you briefly a time in my life when God was a challenge to me rather than a comfort I was 19 years old had just come back from a fairly psychologically and physically gruelling time working with Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity in Calcutta. As a Jesuit novice, I was then plunged into a 30-day silent retreat contemplating the spiritual exercises of St Ignatius of Loyola. At the end of the first week, I was struggling to make sense of the God that I was supposed to believe in. I had a moment of what psychologists would call cognitive dissonance. My experienced understanding of God didn't fit with my intellectual understanding. I remember walking up the hill behind the retreat house and shouting at God to leave me alone. I could never understand people who would say to me when I was a priest, I envy your belief in God. It must be such a comfort. I wanted to say, I envy your unbelief. God can be a bit of a pain at times. Or should I say, Belief in God can be a bit of a pain. For at one level, I believe it doesn't matter whether God exists or not. What matters is what we believe. And that can be a source of comfort or challenge, openness or bigotry. When I I was asked to contribute to this series, I did what I always do. I spent hours in bookshops. I spent pounds in bookshops to listen to other people speaking of God. I did read some of the books, and they will be a useful resource for other reflections. But in the end, I used one book, uh, Karen Armstrong's A History of God, which gives a clear overview of the developing understanding of the concept of God, mainly from the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic faiths, but she also makes reference to Buddhism and Hinduism, faiths which give a refreshingly different way of looking at God, but which have influenced, especially in the last century, the way that many people view God in the Western Judeo-Christian world. During the rest of this session, I will attempt to describe some of the changing views of God and relate it to my own experience, so that hopefully you will hear me speaking of God rather than just Karen Armstrong, though I think I would certainly prefer to listen to her. Let me quote some of the words of Armstrong from the introductory chapter of her book. When I was beginning to research the history of the idea and experience of God in the three related monotheistic faiths of Judaism, Christianity and Islam, I expected to find that God had simply been a projection of human minds and desires. I thought that he would, be, would mirror the fears and yearnings of society at each stage of its development. My predictions were not entirely unjustified, but I have been extremely surprised by some of my findings and wish that I had learned all this 30 years ago when I was starting out on the religious life. It would have saved me a great deal of anxiety to hear from eminent monotheists of all three faiths that instead of waiting for God to descend from on high, I should deliberately create a sense of God for myself. Other rabbis, priests and Sufis would have taken me to task for assuming that God was in any sense a reality out there. They would have warned me not to expect to experience him as an objective fact that could be discovered by the ordinary rational process. They would have told me that in an important sense, God was a product of the creative imagination, like the music and poetry that I find so inspiring. A few highly respected monotheists would have told me quietly and firmly that God did not really exist, and yet that he was the most important reality in the world. Although her book is called A History of God, Armstrong says that it is not a history of the ineffable reality of God, but a history of the way men and women have perceived God. And that reminds me of the comments of the rabbis when discussing God speaking to Moses in the burning bush. They asked, Why is it written God said... I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And not, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They answered, Because God reveals himself in different ways to different people at different times. We need to both listen to the understanding of God from others and be prepared to share our understanding of God with others. That's presumably why five of us have been asked to contribute to the discussions this week. The Bible itself is an example of these different understandings of God. People sometimes say that they can't accept the Bible because it contradicts itself. But that's really only a problem if you misunderstand what the Bible is. And sadly that's a misunderstanding that is often promulgated by people who call themselves Bible-believing Christians. The Bible is not only a collection of books, but many of the books are the bringing together of different strands of stories, of different stories of people's struggle to make sense of their lives and their understanding of the divinity. Those of you who have read the book of Genesis may have spotted that there are in fact two creation stories. Armstrong reminds us that this has been explained by the work of some 19th century German biblical scholars. Form criticism, which is not without its critics today, but form criticism discerned four different sources in the first five books of the Bible. These sources, it is claimed, were later collated into the final text that we have today in the 5th century BCE. The account of creation that we have in the second chapter of Genesis is actually the older version by the so-called J author because he referred to God as Jehovah in the 8th century BCE while the account in Genesis chapter 1 was probably written 200 years later by the priestly author. It's interesting to note that J is not too concerned with speculating about prehistory and how we got here but, as it were, hurries through the history to arrive at chapter 12, at what he considers real history, the story of Abraham and the patriarchs. And so we can see that right from the beginning of an exploration of the divine in the Judeo-Christian tradition, there is a concern more for how our understanding of God affects the daily lives of the people, and an acknowledgement that we can only hope to begin to understand the divine and what that understanding means in, a way, in the way we live our lives if we are prepared to listen and be challenged by the views and perspectives of others. The danger, however, of turning from God of mystery and mythology to a God of history is that we can reduce God to a superman figure. It had been said that in the beginning God created man in his own image and man has been repaying the compliment ever since. Here are some Armstrong's thoughts on the dangers of a personal God. A personal God can become a grave liability. He can be a mere idol carved in our own image, a projection of our own limited needs, fears and desires. We can assume that he loves what we love and hates what we hate, endorsing our prejudices instead of compelling us to transcend them. When he seems to fail to prevent a catastrophe or even to desire a tragedy, then he can seem callous and cruel. A facile belief that a disaster is the will of God can make us accept things that are fundamentally unacceptable. A personal God can be dangerous, therefore. Instead of pulling us beyond our limitations, he can encourage us to remain complacently within them. He can make us cruel, callous, self-satisfied, and as partial as he seems to be. It seems, therefore, that the idea of a personal God can only be a stage in a religious development. The world religions all seem to have recognized the danger and have sought to transcend the personal concept of supreme reality. Which brings me back to where I started. Perhaps we should simply sit in awe and wonder, and contemplate the mighty mystery that we call God. Yet Armstrong points out that Judaism, Christianity and Islam are all essentially active faiths, devoted to ensuring that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. God relates to human beings by means of a dialogue rather than silent contemplation. She reports that the Hebrew prophets had declared war on mythology. Their God was active in history and current political events rather than in the primordial sacred time of myth that is the stable out of which comes the kind of fundamentalist Christian attitudes that all of us would reject. But we also need to acknowledge that that is also the stable out of which we Unitarians come. What perhaps saves us is our openness to the views of others and our resistance to doctrine and dogma. But whether we like to admit it or not, we too came out of the stable of the Bible-loving Protestant Reformation. Our forebears were people of the book who looked to the scriptures to prove their belief in the unity of God. It may be then that having made a gargantuan leap from the stable from which we came, many of us are still wary of unrationalist mystical experiences think how many congregations are still wary of candles of joy and concern. I think that, that at this point that I should come out of the closet and declare myself to be proudly bi-spiritual.
1: <laughs>
2: I fairly readily, especially in these surroundings, acknowledge my rationalist, humanist golden rule approach to spirituality. But I am more reluctant to acknowledge the times when I slip into usually a Roman Catholic church to experience something of that mystery that goes beyond words. For most of my life, I have fluctuated between these two approaches to spirituality and denied the one when proclaiming the other. But I have now come to realize that I am neither one nor the other, but a blend of both, and I deny either at my peril. I would now therefore like to explore something of that mystical tradition and show how it affects my understanding of God. Armstrong writes that when monotheists turned to mysticism, mythology reasserted itself as the chief vehicle of religious experience. She notes that there is a linguistic connection between the three words myth, mysticism, and mystery. All are derived from the Greek verb mystion, to close the eyes or mouth. All three words, therefore, are rooted in an experience of darkness and silence. But these are not popular words in the West today. Myth is often used as a synonym for a lie. Mystery is seen as something that needs to be solved. And mysticism is often associated with charlatans and crooks. Yet there is a change in attitudes and through the works of people such as Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell we are beginning to realise that a myth doesn't have to be true to be able to help us to understand universal truths. Mystical religion can be more immediate and tends to be more help in time of trouble than a predominantly cerebral faith. The disciplines of mysticism can help the practitioner to return to the one, the primordial beginning, and to cultivate a sense of presence. Yet, in a paradoxical way, although there is an immediacy and an entering into the presence of the divine in the mystical tradition, there can also be a sense of distance from the divine, and a need to transcend the gulf between humanity and divinity. This can entail strange actions that put the practitioners into almost trance-like states in order, as it were, to uncover the divine presence that is in fact all around. In the area of South London where I live, there is a plethora of African churches Where people seem to exhibit a frenzied style of worship, which not only binds them to the divine presence, but to one another as they seek a sense of solidarity within an often alien culture. It's often when people feel isolated or persecuted that this style of exuberant mysticism flourishes. The strange apocalyptic writings of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. Come from times of alienation and persecution. The last book of the Bible, the Apocalypse or the Revelation to St. John the Divine, comes out of this tradition. When we read it, we might wonder what St. John was on. <laughs> it's often been used to frighten people into thinking that the end was nigh. But its original intention was not to frighten, but to encourage, to give the early persecuted Christians hope. Hope in the fact that what they were experiencing was not the full story. They were encouraged to enter another world, not in denial of this world, but so that they could cope with this world. One could argue that the secular equivalent is the rave, where people will dance for hours on end to enable them to return to their humdrum daily lives. And it's interesting to note that the theatres in London's West End have experienced a great revival in audience numbers since the recession began. When people are suffering, they need something ecstatic, something that will take them outside of themselves. I spoke at the beginning of this presentation of the time when I struggled with God or more accurately struggled to make sense of my understanding of God Armstrong claims that this idea of struggling with God or going through a dark night of the soul is very much a product of western Christianity She explains that in eastern Christianity experience of God was char- characterized by light rather than darkness the Greek Christians evolved a different form of mysticism, which is also found worldwide. This did not depend on imagery and vision, but rested on the apophatic or silent experience described by Denis the Areopagite, the nom de plume of a 6th century Greek Christian, who paradoxically, there's a lot of paradox in this, paradoxically advocated the use of liturgies and dogmas as dramatic and poetic vehicles to bring us to union with the divine. Dennis, 1,600 years ago, argued that we were wrong to use the word God since God was above God, a mystery beyond being. Christians, he said, must realise that God is not the supreme being, the highest being of all. Heading a hierarchy of lesser beings. Things and people do not stand over or against God as a separate reality or or an alternative being, which can be the object of knowledge. God, he said, is not one of the things that exists and is quite unlike anything else in our experience. In fact, it is more accurate to call God nothing, no thing. Yet, said Dennis, we can use our incapacity to speak of God as a method of achieving union with God which is nothing less than a deification, a becoming one with God. This reminded me of one of my favourite prayers in the Eucharist. It's said by the priests, often not heard by the congregation and only said in churches in in the Catholic end of the Christianity when the priest pours a drop of water into the chalice of wine he or she says by the mystery of this water and wine may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity we may we, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ now don't all leap up and burn me as a Unitarian heretic It's not the words or theology that's important, but the idea that with the liturgy, within sacred acts, the barriers between sacred and secular, human and divine, are broken down and we can enter into the oneness of all being. In the Eastern Christian tradition, the aim of the contemplative was to go beyond ideas and also beyond all images since these could only be a distraction. Paradoxically, again, paradoxically though, Eastern Christians often use more images than their fellow Western Christians to get beyond them. The aim was to acquire a certain sense of presence that was indefinable and certainly transcended all human experience of a relationship with another person. This attitude was called hesychia, tranquility, or interior silence. Since words, ideas, and images can only tie us down in the mundane world, in the here and now, the mind must be deliberately stilled by techniques of concentration so that it could cultivate a waiting silence. Only then could it hope to apprehend a reality that transcended anything it could conceive. But how was it, is it possible to know an incomprehensible God? Well, the Greeks loved that kind of paradox, and the Hesychists, the contemplatives, turned to the old distinction between God's essence, his usia, and his energies, energy, or actions in the world, which enable us to experience something of the divine. Though we can never know God's essence, we can experience the effects, the energies or action of God in prayer and the events of our daily lives. These effects of God were described as the rays of divinity which illuminated the world and were seen as an outpouring of the divine, but as distant from God as sunbeams were distant from the sun. My understanding of this Eastern Christian approach to God, and I may be wrong, is that there are echoes of the Vedantic Hindu understanding of God. In Vedic religion, people had experienced a holy power in the religious liturgy, just as Dennis the Areopagite experienced the divine presence in the Christian liturgy. The people called this sacred power Brahman. Brahman gradually came to mean a power which sustains everything. The world was seen as the divine activity welling up from the mysterious being or Brahman, which was the inner meaning of all existence. Some saw Brahman as a personal power, but others saw it as something impersonal. This divine power was seen at one and the same time, to be utterly alien and pervading, sustaining and inspiring us. Brahman was seen to pervade the world and as Atman, the pervasion of Brahman, to be found eternally within each one of us. This paradox is explained in the story of the young man who was asked by his father to put salt in a bucket of water The next day his father asked him to produce the salt which of course he couldn't as it had dissolved. His father said to him, sip the water at this end. What is it like? Salt, the boy replied. Sip it in the middle. What's it like? Salt. Sip it at the far end. What's it like? Salt. Then his father said, throw it away and come to me. The boy did as he was told but that didn't stop the salt from remaining the same. His father said to him, My son, it is true that you cannot perceive Brahman, ultimate reality. But it is equally true that it is here, it is everywhere, it is within you. The concept of Atman, the dwelling of Brahman within all creation, prevented God from being an idol, an external reality out there, a projection of our own fears and desires. God is not seen in Hinduism as a being added on to the world as we know it. Nor is it identical with the world. Hindu sages taught that there is no way that we could fathom this out by reason. It is only revealed to us by experiences which cannot be expressed in words or concepts. It is a reality that can only be discerned in ecstasy, in the original sense of going out beyond the self. Reason is not denied, but transcended. The experience of Brahman or Atman cannot be explained rationally any more than can a piece of music or a poem. Intelligence is necessary for the making of such a work of art and its appreciation, but it offers an experience that goes beyond what our logical minds can explain. I began by saying that I wished I was a Benedictine monk rather than having been a Franciscan friar. But as I have explored this topic, I've come to realise how much Francis of Assisi moulded my understanding of God and how grateful I am to him. As Yvonne said the other day, you can take the boy out of the Franciscans, but you can't take the Franciscans <laughs> out of the boy. <laughs> Francis too was bi-spiritual an active contemplative, a mystical missionary. We all know that Francis was passionate about all creation. He is, after all, patron saint of garden (laughs) centres. Like the Hindu sages, Francis believed that the divine spirit permeated all creation. But he wasn't a pantheist, believing that all creation was God. But like them, he was a panentheist, believing that the Divine Spirit was in all creation, but also greater than all creation. Francis believed that God could be experienced in the liturgy, in the scriptures, and particularly in people. He called all people and all things brother or sister. He recognized the unity of all creations and that of God within all creation. I must confess that during my time as a Franciscan, I had a love-hate relationship with Francis. I was attracted to him and often appalled by some of his attitudes. And so it was quite a shock to get to this point and realise that he was still influencing me. On reflection, however, I think that what attracted me to Francis of Assisi was not the historical figure, but Francis, the mythical character. Francis who was a symbol of contemplation and action. Francis who didn't intellectualise about God but who experienced God in worship and in people. In Francis, I understand my own struggle to grasp the salt in the water. I don't understand God. I can't explain God. But I have experienced that which I call God in strange and diverse parts of my life. At least now I know that I'm not alone in my unknowing, and I'm in quite good company.
0: minutes to just turn around. I've got a few concluding things I'd like to say before we go off to coffee. But just have (coughs) five, ten minutes and maybe you'd like to talk turn around to the person next to you. On that last thing that David said, how does it feel to be in a company of unknowing? (laughs) I'll I'll indicate when we need to come back together, but have stretch. (laughs) Do whatever you need to do. But just have five ten minutes to turn around and let that (laughs) settle. (laughs)
2: I
1: think that's why
0: Well, I, I gave myself the option. I said five or ten minutes on the basis that if you'd all sat there and looked at each other, I could have stopped you. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, obviously, you know, people found plenty to talk to, and I hope that will continue. But I'm just going to share just a few short responses, reflections, things that were provoked in me by what David said. Um, so for many of us, when talking of God, we have to balance the mystical and interior, don't we, with... The mystical and interior world, interior world with the practical, exterior sharing of our common humanity with an uncommon, uncommon God. Unitarians have historically focused on reason and rationality, yada yada yada. But our God talk actually most often resorts to poetry, doesn't it? And mysticism. It's where we, we find it easier to go, actually. Now I'm slightly warily going to dip my toe into some historical comments here. Anyone who was out on the patio yesterday knows that me dipping my toe into historical comments is a bit alarming. (laughs) So, you know, if if I am incorrect, I look forward to you know, helping me along my way of understanding. Um, I've been reading a little bit about the 19th century transcendentalists. Now, they were a bunch, weren't they? Um, Fascinating, yeah. Um, One of the ideas that I got out of this uh, reading was this this, this distinction that they had between reason and understanding. I kind of liked it because it kind of subverted the whole, oh, we're to reason, hmm, reason is, you know, and the idea that reason is all about thinking big thoughts. Because that's actually not what the Transcendentalists meant by reason at all. Um, And they distinguished between reason meaning to be able to know the truth immediately, without calculation, without proof, an immediate awareness of what... Was true. So, so reason is universal. It's part of what it means to be a human being. Every human being is able to make those leaps of knowledge. Reason, in fact, was the realm of religion and poetry. Religion, was, reason was mystical. Yeah. So, reason was about the uh, human ability every human being has to know. Understanding was something quite different, and understanding was, for them, was the mental processes. It was the the ability to work things out, to calculate, to, to argue, to, de- to debate. And that's, of course, you know, whereas reason, in this transcendentalist sense, is open to everyone, everyone potentially is perfected in that ability. Understanding is limited by every individual's different ability. The paradox David spoke of, knowing the incomprehensible God is the sort of situation to which this division is rather relevant. So when I read David's thoughts, oh, transcendentalists, oh, that looks like something that they were already saying way back when. For the transcendentalists, it's only in our understanding that God is incomprehensible, the calculating, the working out, the mental processes. God remains accessible to everyone through the intuitive leap, through reason, and that's what David identified, is, can be found in such a variety of religious traditions. And this leads me to another reflection on what David has said, and one relate, which relates to my day job, to my bread and butter work. Um, and the, the reflection is this, for most religious traditions, God and religion are not the same thing, which might sound a bit obvious, but actually it's not always. They aren't the same thing, and they don't necessarily lead in the same direction. Karen Armstrong rightly identifies that her history of God is in fact a history of human attempts to understand God. But unavoidably, she ends up with God and religion becoming intermingled, even though we recognise they're not the same thing. So in my day job, I'm an academic. I teach religious studies. Um, I research religion as a dimension of human experience. And I support students... In their meanderings through the rather interesting world of the academic study of religions, God, I have to say, comes up remarkably infrequently. (laughs) Now, I'm not actually a theologian, although I do dabble. I do dabble in theology. It's (laughs) It's a department of theology and religious studies, you see. It's a department of theology and religious studies. So some of us are very obviously at the religious studies end. But I teach a course on interfaith, so I have to dabble in theology. Um, so, I'm not a theologian, so God, if you like, isn't my specific trade as such. <laughs> instead, I'm more. <laughs> you know, you have a different relationship to these things when it's, you know. I'm an anthropologist of religion instead. I, I, um, in my research, I'm, I'm about uncovering how people practice, what they believe, and how we can understand religious traditions based on beliefs that are not shared. That's what I do I go and find out what people actually believe Not any of the other stuff um, Now many of the students don't believe in God A lot of them don't believe in God but They choose to do theology and religious studies It's a non-confessional teaching environment So they can happily and productively Get involved with theological discussions They do And some extraordinarily interesting stuff they come up with But God and religion are not the same thing For the majority of students, the existence of God just comes up very rarely. It's just peripheral, if you like. God is taken as a given, whether you believe in God or not. So that religions, the truth or otherwise of a religion, is measured by its effects, harmful or positive, rather than whether God exists at the middle of it, at the centre of it, or not. Now, Unitarian theology, of course, takes this all a step further. God's known through experience. Religion is not the same as God. But actually, through our adoption of humanism, uh, there's no reason why we need to believe in God at all in order to be a Unitarian. No reason we need to believe in God at all to be a Unitarian. We've developed a way of being together that focuses on religion as an institution, church, organisation, community, rather than God. And so this is perhaps the challenge I start off with in response to all of our speakers and all of you. Do Unitarians need God at all? Why do we bother retaining our God talk, our prayers, our hymns? How do we speak of God in a way that makes sense to those, and doubtless there are some among us here, whose experience, whose intuition, whose reason tell them with equal force that there is nothing more, that we are no more than the sum of our parts, both personally and communally? How do we do that? We do it all the time through being in loving community with one another. We just do make room, don't we? We just get on with it. We adopt language that allows us each to hear our own reality. We use song and prayer and meditation when words fail. We focus on the very many moral, ethical and philosophical insights that unite us above all else. We work hard and carefully at our sense of being in beloved community, on learning how to live and worship together. But where do we leave God? Where do we leave God? Is it enough to be agnostic? Can we make sense of our diversity in theological language as well as in mystical writings? And I'm reminded of a Far Side cartoon. And two sober suited men come to the door of a lady's house, and she's opened the door, and they say to her, I'm going to adapt it slightly, Have you found God? Have you found God? Now, in the original Far Side cartoon, she, they say, Have you found Jesus? Have you seen this cartoon? Yes. Well. And there's a very empty room and a curtain yes. with a pair of sandals at the bottom. And so with the questions <laughs> So you say I'm getting deep and meaningful, where do we leave God? I'm thinking far side, you know. But it's an important question where do we leave God? Is it enough to be agnostic? Can we make sense of our diversity in theological language as well as in mystical writings? Can we? All questions and ideas that we will return to in our next four talks. And which David has very admirably prepared us for. Let us just end with a few moments of stillness. A few moments to let our thoughts settle. We started with so many questions, so many ideas. to sit easy with it maybe let a single key question slowly bubble up from your soul And as you go off for coffee do not be afraid, afraid of sharing that question with someone else you're welcome to stay or leave as the music plays but please leave quietly so others can listen